This is Brent from Maximus, and you are listening to the Mind of Little Rage. It's time to get loud and get heard on another episode of the Mind of Little Rage. And now your host, Charles Little Rage Alloway. Sunday edition of the Mind of Little Rage, and on today's program, oh, I think uh, I think you get better get ready to have your uh, your eyeballs singed and take a sledgehammer to your balls because that's what's going to happen today. I have Scroll Keeper here on the program with me. They are a Houston-based band, and you know it's uh, it's been a long time coming. For this band to come on the program we've had some uh some hiccups in the past but you know what it's it's all good it's all in the past and that's where it belongs in the past so before uh we get into today's program first i want to make sure that we uh give thanks to all the frontline workers all the healthcare workers that have been working diligently through this pandemic and uh i think I think that's enough of that. Let's get into the show. So I'd like to welcome Alex and Justin from Scroll Keeper. How are we doing today, guys? Thanks for having us, man. Hey, oh, just a, a little bit hungover, you know, big tequila night last night, had some barbecue. So today is a little iffy, still on coffee. <laughs> hey, you know what? But that's okay, you know. It's uh, especially when we've been uh, quarantined and all that bullshit, it's... it's uh, you, you got to let the aggressions out and, and uh, have a little fun at least. You know, you go fucking stir crazy inside your house all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. So the uh, usually the first first question uh, of our first series of questions that I have, uh, when did Scroll Keeper come to be? Just in uh, Well, the original, the original incarnation of the band uh, was formed by our drummer, uh, and a guitar player who's no longer with us uh, back in 2016. Uh, and I joined late summer of 2016 and and then, you know, had a revolving door of guitar players until um, 
until Alex came aboard. Alex and I've known each other for for a long time, so um, Alex came in, and it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind since. Lots of recording, lots of gigs. Um, finally, a full length album is pretty much complete. So. Uh, yeah. Well, and and I take it that during all of this uh, quarantine stuff, uh, you've been able to kind of fo- put a little bit more focus on the music of the band as well. Well, we haven't done much because it was completed before quarantine. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. I did write an intro for the album, which uh, we're going to tag on. It was one of those things that just came out. Because I didn't know if we are going to have power, so I took out my classical guitar which I haven't played since, I don't know, 2014 or something like that. So I just, you know, okay, let's see this bad boy. Let's see what comes out. It's just like, boom, okay, here we go. There you uh, go. We have an intro now, so. There I'm you gonna, go. I, I'm going to pretend to be Paco de Lucia on the opening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. And I'm saying pretend because these, uh, you know, I actually I play okay with one, two, three, you know, like a bass player would. But, you know, on classical guitar, you should be able to do this on all these strings, you know, changing. So, I mean, it came out pretty good, I think. And so, it's kind of a flamenco style? Uh, I wish. Uh, <laughs> let, let's say uh, flamenco adjacent. Okay, okay. <laughs> to, uh, I guess, like Renaissance. Uh, like a Renaissance, maybe, uh, I don't know what to say. Like, maybe more like a... Uh, uh, Bach piece or something like that. It's not as fast. Okay, okay, okay. That well, you know, and and the, and that's the great thing about music is you can you can kind of mold it to wherever you want it to go. And I, and I find that especially true when it comes to uh, hard rock and heavy metal. It's, I mean, sky's the limit with you know subject matter, how you want to structure the song and everything like that. Um, you know. When you when you get into country or something like that, it's usually kind of cut and dry. It's a and bit more sh- Well, and not shitting on country because there's a lot of country music that I like, and I because I'm musically bipolar. But, um, <laughs> you know, you you can you know with metal, it's just everything is open, and that's that's one of the many fab fabulous things I love about metal. But I enough. Say, go ahead. I gotta say this about though this is probably the last vestige of live music right now it's uh it's what's keeping the studios in business and uh, especially pretty much the whole town of nashville but you know this is a uh, probably the last music that's recorded truly live because most of metal which we try to change that i think there is a backlash but most of metal up until i guess 2010 2012 was pretty much all this typewriter drums you know program stuff everything was just on the grid etc so we kind of tried to deviate from that and go back to you know more like a band playing in a room you know and i can respect that because it seems like something is lost and, and i'm speaking from a drummer's point of view when you have a band that doesn't have a drummer and they use you know a, a program or you know keyboard drums or whatever it loses something in the mix. There's oh, that yeah. human element is gone. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and even if it's if it's a, an actual human drummer on like a Roland, you know, TD9 or TD12 kit, there's still that human element. And 
it's it's yeah, it's true. audible. It's the micro, it's the micro notes that are off the grid. You know, it's not, and that that's the problem I have with a lot of production. And probably Simon will kill me for saying this, but the latest Judas Priest, the one that actually I don't even think any of the original guitarists are on. It's just Andy Sneap on one guitar and. What was the other guy? The KK clone on the other one. Mm-hmm. But the drums, they sound like a drum machine, you know, like somebody grabbed. And Scott Travis is a phenomenal drummer. He's a, I mean, you could say he's a machine, but, you know, he doesn't sound like a machine. But on the latest one, they just squeeze it and put it on the grid so bad that it just doesn't sound like a live drummer anymore. There is nothing, no, no, none no, of these plants. Maybe only no the cymbals leak a little bit. Exactly, Justin. That's the that's the best way to put it. There's no life to it, you know, and that, and that could be said for any instrument. If you're simulating bass or you know guitar, it just yeah. it loses that that life of the song. But it but goes not, it, it goes beyond the simulation, right? So like the drums are the most egregious example. But with modern metal bands, they're all using the same speakers. They're all using the same mics to mic up the cabinets. So you you have this. I guess it's what the vintage thirties that they're all using. And it's like every, every guitar track sounds the same tonally. Like there's, there's no identity in any of it. They all want to sound like sugar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That PV, beehive of an amp, the 5150 or then it became the 6505. But that's the funny thing. I frequent a lot of forums. Actually, I'm a studio engineer that's kind of retired. I pick and choose my projects and they've been less and less because there is, quite a few things I don't like lately and but anyway one of the things you go to forums and you see they all say okay you need this amp you need this cap and you need this mic and most of them even tell you what software to use it's like and you get this software and that's what you get started with so most of these guys are for the most part if they don't have a massive dual rectifier guilty also uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I run it through a different speaker I run it through Orange Cab. So anyway, unless you have a Mesa or a 5150 or 6505, an SM57 mic, you know, you're not legit. You're not doing music. And same thing, uh, same thing for drum mics. You have to have an SM57 on the snare. And vocalists, they have to have a Sure 58. Oh, guilty, by the way, Justin. <laughs> but no, we don't record with an SM58. But you know, for live. No, in the studio, in the studio, we rehearse. I, I rehearse with a with a 58. But we didn't record with the 58. I think you know, the for the 58 is because Justin, you know, like every time we go to a venue, that's the mic you're going to have. So you got to learn how to work it. But now I think we're going to start, uh, you know, carrying our own mics. Well, you know, this it, the, the, the crazy thing is, is if you look at. Um, OK, let's look at a band that that has been attached to houston or or was in the past for several years king's x ty Tabor had this had this amazing guitar tone and there were so many other guitarists out there that were trying to emulate that king's x ty Tabor sound and he was so hush hush on how he did that and it wasn't until they kind of changed their sound they detuned to i think it was e on Dogman. Yeah. And then, you know, a few years after that, Ty was like, okay, this is how I did it. You know, I used this head and these speakers and da-da-da, you know. And even, you know, 
you were saying that the guitars sound the same. You know, you can back in the day you could tell a huge difference, not only in playing style but sound between an Alex Skolnick and a Dave Mustaine and a and a Kirk Hammett. Maybe they all had their different sound. Productions. If you listen to the production of, let's say, uh, what Testament uh, Souls of Black, then you compare that to Metallica. I think at that time it was Justice for All. Then you compare that to Slayer, uh, not South of Heaven, but the next one. What was it? Uh, Seasons. And then who else came out at that time? Let's say that Destruction had one, which was uh, a release from Agony. Creator had Coma of Souls. Sodom had a uh, what was it? Uh, Better off dead, I think, or it might have been actually the previous one, Agent Orange. And if you listen to each one of these albums. There isn't a single, like the drum sounds are completely different on all of them. The bass sounds are completely different. The guitar sounds are completely different. And the vocal sounds are completely yep. different. Then the production, the ambience, the reverberation on it, it's completely different. So all these are very original sounding albums. And the thing is, you know, some of, some, some of these bands have deficient players, like uh, Louis Clemente, for example, and Testament, that... And that bass player, what was it, Christian something? I don't think he was very good either. Yeah, his his last name escapes me. But if you listen to that mix, you know, that in order to deal with that back in the day when you couldn't put it on a grid as perfectly as now, you know, they put in a ton of reverb on it, you know, in order to hide Louis Clemente's idiosyncronicities. And, you know, on the bass, they just kind of made it all woolly and put it out there, but you can't really hear definitively what he's doing. And then the rest of the bands, you know, you could pretty much have like a different, like, for example, Sodom used a lot of distortion on the bass, kind of like Motorhead. Uh, oh, Megadeth. I, I actually mentioned Megadeth because of your T-shirt. One of my I favorite. I love albums. me some Megadeth. <laughs> I'm mistaken around that time. I'm talking like 87, 88. Yeah. So Rust in Peace, for example, has a very distinctive, very clean, almost non-bassy bass sound. You know, it's kind of more yeah, of a country. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, nobody had at that point. You know, all this stuff was original. And then Slayer, you know, they had their, I mean, I, I have to say probably for that time, probably the best mixed guitars. And definitely the most aggressive sounding guitars. They had probably the best tone, in my opinion, at that time. And then Testament had the most, uh, I'd say, like, shred, shred era effects, which I think at that point, maybe Sconey got a little crazy and started overdoing the reverb and delays on it. And he toned down. He went back to a more organic tone. But back then, you know, was yeah. the era of the big rack effect, where, you know, so many reverb effects, delays, harmonizers, etc., Kind of like... I mean, it sounded cool, though. Like, Sconey solo still sounded cool. Back. Don't fear the reverb. No, it did sound cool, and it was original. <laughs> all of it, you know, it was original. Especially nowadays, with today's ear, if you listen back to these albums, and I was like, wow, this was all so cool, you know. And there is a reason why a lot of people still go back to those records. They go to the latest Metallica. Well, the latest Testament was really good. Megadeth, in my opinion, they started sounding very precanced. I don't know what you guys think about that. I'm sorry, man. I know you're wearing the Magda T-shirt, but I think the last 
the last album, the sounds just came out of you know opera processor, and you can tell. I, I just I think it's it's kind of being used as a crutch right now, uh, and, you know. And you could even go back further uh, with with Alex Lifeson from Rush. You know, it's it, they they kind of after moving pictures or actually kind of started at moving pictures, they went to a more kind of synth based sound. Oh, and then yeah, when right. it came time to do uh, was it counterparts, I believe uh, the producer was like, Hey, we need, we need to get you guys back to that power trio sound. And Alex was like, I get my reverb back. And the guy's like, Nope, no, yeah, no, we need, we need the Alex Lifeson sound, that sound that you established in the seventies and in that, in a, you know, up to 80, 81. That's what we want. That is rush. And, it was, you know, counter, you know, that's that's a phenomenal fucking album uh, from Rush, and uh, you know, I, I think I ne- nearly pissed myself. I'm like, oh shit, okay, Getty got away from the fucking keyboard. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I I, I don't want to bag on him because he's probably the only guy in the biz that plays keyboard and bass at the same time. Yeah. But I don't think he was really that good on the keyboards. It was more like a like an ambience type of you know fill. Um, Add an atmosphere to it. Atmospheric, yeah. But they were super organic and tight live. I remember that. And I, it's been a while since I've seen them. I know now, you know, we're not going to have a chance again. But uh, I think I saw them in the early 2000s somewhere. And they, they sounded very organic and realistic. I mean, everything was, you know, it's not that fake sound that you hear on the records that Alex had. You know, everything was like super live and real. Almost I saw kind them. I table uh, comparison, you know, kind of that kind of sound. Well, I, I got to see Rush on the uh, Time Machine tour when they came through San Antonio, and uh, they they sounded phenomenal live. Uh, just and that that was like a three and a half hour show, and. But they, I gotta be honest with you: if you move, if you mute the guitar and the bass and just leave. You know, if you just left the drums, I still would have stayed there, you know. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. It's Neil. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was really, you know, that was really the main point why people like Chris. Oh, I'm please tune the vocals out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but, I think he, he's as bad as people talk. The time I've met, it really did sound like a squirrel in a dishwasher, you know. Or something. <laughs> I don't I kind of grew to love Getty's vocals, you know, and it's, I guess, because it was so unique. And nobody sounded like Getty, and you know, you know, I think that's why a lot of the or the running joke is the females don't listen to Rush is be you know maybe because of Getty's vocals, you know, or whatever. It is it can be an acquired taste. I don't I don't mind him on album, but watching a lot of the live stuff, you know, in the last decade of their existence, I mean, he was caterwauling like just not good. And as we get older, our voices change and, you know, maybe yeah. we can hit those high notes and, and, you know, not shitting on Getty, but, you, you know, things change and you're not going to hit those high notes like no. you did in fly by night, like you did in 73. It's just yeah. not going to happen in 2010. Well, I mean, he, he sort of made the mistake that a lot of singers in the eighties would go on to make is when you stake your entire career on living up in the stratosphere as a vocalist. There's going to come a time you can't do that proficiently anymore, right? And you're going to—I mean, it's yeah. happening to Halford. 
you know, I, I love point, but yeah, case in point, Vince, Vince Neal, that, that dude. Oh my, have you, Vince, have you heard Vince that? Neal. Vince Neal. Neal yeah. Sounded like shit. So, I mean, it's he's not, never he's been good. Like a, he's never been good. It's even worse like now. Flavor of shit now, but you know, he always <laughs> sounded like shit. I don't know, man. It's, although I like the first two Motley albums. Oh, I, mean, I do too. I do they too. have that nasty, grindy, you know, like a like a flick knife, backstreet fight uh, quality to them, which I love. Oh yeah, I I like the crew. I'm just saying, from a live perspective, Vince can't hang. Oh, no. live, yeah, they were horrific. I actually saw him on a double package with Megadeth, and I didn't go there for for the crew. I went for Megadeth. I think it was the last lineup of uh, the one they had Marty on right before they've had that hand incident. So they yeah. did a double date where everybody was wondering what the hell is Megadeth doing with Motley Crew? You know, it was very weird. Yeah, money. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was. But the funny thing is, you know, it was like I don't know if you guys saw that show at the Woodlands. Uh, the place went down to like 20 percent, uh, uh, you know, like 80 percent of the crowd left after the second or third Motley Crue song. I mean, they gave them the benefit of the doubt, but they were just so bad. And I and I'm saying this as the as the whole band, they just weren't good. Although Tommy Lee's a, is an interesting drummer. I mean, he's got a good approach. He knows he hits with a lot of power. I like him. But you know, just the whole band, you know, that the bass player is. You know, former or current junkie or whatever. I don't know what, but, you know, it always shows. Mick Mars has always been solid. Uh, Vince yeah. Neal, you know, once he kind of lost his looks, that that was kind of the decline of, you know. And, and his Everybody. ability to sing entire phrases. So he, <laughs> yeah. just sort of, he just sort of pops in and out. It's like, well, I'll sing this word and then skip to, and then I'll sing the fourth word. Yeah. You know, the, the, the George Jones... The George Jones style of singing and you know making a one syllable word into a five syllable word doesn't work. It doesn't translate to metal more times no, than no. not. It works great no. for George Jones, but but not Motley Crue. No. Uh, let's let's kind of steer the the and I'm loving this. I love the back and forth. Uh, I kind of want to focus, or not kind of. I want to focus on Scrollkeeper. So uh, what I'd like to do is. Uh, get your individual influences, you know, give me two, three, four, five uh, major influences that steered your career to where it is now. And then we'll just start with, I'll, I'll just, Justin, go ahead. So as a vocalist, I, I mean, I came out of more of like an extreme metal background. So in my 20s, I did a lot of thrash and death metal, stuff like that. Um, starting at about 2008 I put together a band Saxon King that the intention was to kind of make old school metal at the time kind of thrash meets old school traditional metal so my focus became more on quote unquote clean vocals um so as far as like the vocal style I'm doing now I mean there's the obvious you know Halford uh Dickinson Jeff Tate are big influences but I don't really sing that way mm -hmm. um I'm, I have more of a street level approach, you know, more of a baritone approach to it. Um, more of like a liege Lord Manila road kind of thing. You know, that's, that's more my territory. I can do the super high stuff. Um, I did it in Saxon King, but I choose I'm for scroll keeper to keep Paul it a bit Diano, more street man. level. Huh? I'm going to say Paul Diano, you know, I yeah, got to hear Paul Diano in there. 
Yeah. You know what was great about Deano is, you know, a lot of Bruce Dickinson loyal Iron Maiden fans will will kind of shit on Deano, but he had he had an attitude yeah. in his vocals, in his delivery, and it you know, it was kind of that punk attitude and it was it was almost like the precursor for for bands, you know, that that crossover thrash, that DRI uh, you know, and corrosion, the early corrosion of conformity that oh, yeah. it's kind of, kind of set the stage for that. So the, the punk uh, attitude is there, but I think people, I think people do a disservice by looking back at the Diano years and going, Oh, well he was the inferior vocalist. Not at all. Like, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm a Bruce Dickinson fanboy, but Diano, Diano had great range on those first two albums and great note placements. The the dude was not like a shit singer by any stretch. Also, the dude was great. Songwriting, you know, he had actually some good contributions on in the lyric department. Yeah. Well, Dick now, I can't say he's great yeah. now. I mean, watching video of him currently, not good. But yeah. in, in in Maiden's heyday, the dude was great. I just have no idea why he didn't buy like a trailer in Magnolia and just move there, you know, by his look. <laughs> he could have joined the barbecue nation. Yeah, like my neighbor, you know. <laughs> All right, Alex, what do you got for me on the influences? Oh, I'm just going to show this. There you go. I, I was looking at that. <laughs> Be right back while he's going through his early destruction. Well, that's not that early, but anyway, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Europe actually, and I moved uh, in my teens. Uh, my mom got a job in MD Anderson, so I came over uh, with her. But I grew up on pretty much went through. The same influences, you know, it's like originally I did have an older friend that was listening to Deep Purple. So he gave me these Deep Purple bootleg copies. And I, I got into that, you know, that was the first. My dad was kind of like a Queen, Foreigner, Rolling Stones kind of fan. So that's probably the first stuff that I heard that's heavier. So I'm, I'm still a fan of all these and I have them on uh, record. Actually, I buy all this stuff. I, for the most part, I find the 70s music sounds the most organic especially on vinyl so i still collect a lot of that so i started off with these bands horrible you know i was like a metal guy saying foreigner but uh i mean i i don't really it doesn't really tickle down into my music much nowadays but you know it was just something that i liked that i was like i gotta hear something heavy you know the vocals are good but you know it's like those synths kind of i never liked them so then i heard after deep purple i mean richie blackmore was just fantastic i don't think anybody was Still, in the guitar world, I don't think anybody can beat him nowadays. Even Mountain by all these guys, I don't know. They're just, you know, they're rather more proficient probably, but on feel and uh, overall touch, I think he's still, you know, probably the number one for me. And Gary Moore is the, another one, but I got into him much later. So what happens is, the funny thing about Europe at that time, uh Black Sabbath had gone through its heyday by the time I discovered music. So I didn't hear any of the original three Sabbath records up until like the mid uh, late 80s. So I heard Sabbath, the Tony Martin era, where they had synthesizers and gone, basically became porridge. So I, I didn't, you know, most people hear Sabbath, Black Sabbath. And then after that album, it's like, wow, you know, I got to go into metal. So, uh, you know, so mainly it was first Deep Purple, then Kiss were always in the newspapers. So, you know, uh, 
you get curious. It's like, what these, what do these guys sound like? So you look at the demon for me was like, oh man, this guy has to be badass. And then, you know, as a kid, I get a bootleg copy of the Kiss Alive album. And okay, I'm blown away by that, but it's like, you know, it could be heavier. It could be better. I discover ACDC and Scorpions next. I'm a huge fan of both still. I mean, that's, uh, you know, Scorpions were fantastic at the time. They had just done like all their great stuff, you know. Like, I mean, to me, you can't touch anything by the Scorpions until like 84. Everything is gold. Then after that, they kind of—I mean, "Wind of Changes" was a huge song, but the album that goes with it—I don't—I don't think anybody really got into that. But that was a bit later. So originally, I started on ACDC and Scorpions, but I'm like, I gotta hear something heavier. And somebody hands me Wasp, and it was Wasp, you know, the uh, "S Like a Beast" album, <laughs> you know. And as a kid, it's like, man, this is it. I want to do that. You know, I still haven't gotten laid, but, you know, if I get a chance, you know, I'll, I'll be doing exactly that, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it was Wasp. I heard that. I was like, man, this is really badass. So I was a, probably the first band that I was really a big proper fan of was Wasp for about two years until I heard Metallica's second one. Uh, Ride the Lightning. Ride the Lightning, yeah. Uh, and again, everything was bootleg uh, tapes at that point. Honestly, like you could, you could buy a few LPs, but you know, I came from a communist country, so all this stuff was heavily censored. So the funny thing is, the '70s stuff wasn't censored. Like even the '60s stuff, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, and all that. You can go to a record store anywhere and just basically gorge yourself on that stuff. But you know, all the metal stuff, you know, anything that was deemed satanic or you know overtly satanic you know was out of stores you know he couldn't find it anywhere so it was all bootlegging somebody went to germany and copied the tape off of some other dude over there and then they brought it in and then we all distributed it was crazy so after wasp it was uh metallica for me then again i was like i gotta hear something heavier faster so i discovered you know the german trifecta sodom destruction creator uh, there was also another band from Germany called Messiah. They were really heavy. It was kind of like a death, doom, trash on their first album, especially really good. Uh, Venom, you know, uh, you know, talking about the timeline, I had seen the Judas Priest. I had seen about that time, you know, somebody gave me a copy of Accept. So I became a huge Accept fan. It was the balls to the wall era. Mm -hmm. And Metal Hearts, I remember exactly. wearing out that I mean, that's, uh, Metal Hearts, a fucking badass album. Yeah, the Metal Heart, I, I wore out that tape in like one month, you know, that was my main one. But I continued going into heavier stuff. And I remember seeing a Venom video at that point. And Venom, you know, they were kind of like the originators of, I guess, black metal, you would call it now. Although, back the then... Back then, they were really new wave of traditional heavy metal. I wouldn't call them black metal by any means, but they had the satanic imagery of black metal. Right. So I kind of dug that. That I was like, okay, there's got to be something heavier. So I was, before Celtic Frost, there was Hellhammer. So I was a Hellhammer yeah. fan. But, you know, their stuff was just like really dumb and basic as far as the music went. I mean, it was like a, like a bulldozer at full speed, you know, coming at you. It was very, especially the Hellhammer stuff, not the Celtic Frost. But so, I mean, up to this day, I have to say, if I have to mention three main influences, my biggest one was Coroner, which was 
kind of like where I graduated after going through all the trash metal bands corner, like the cream of the crop on the top. They were the most progressive, technically proficient trash. Then Voivod was another band that, you know, absolutely blew me away. And, you know, our drummer will probably slag me for this, but that's, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan still to this day. Uh, I mean, you know, Voivod had their issues with pitch and, you know, sometimes not writing such great songs. Yeah, but songs. Voivod, like, completely reinvented the approach to the genre. Like, of, like, yeah. at the time coming into the thrash scene, like, Voivod didn't sound like anybody. Oh, right? no. And as they evolved, they continued to sound unique. It's not like they evolved to incorporate something other people were doing. They just kept evolving on their own trajectory. And the funny thing about Voivod, actually, the reason I checked about you guys got laugh big stuff. Um, Bulgarian language, Voivod, actually not close. It's called Voivoda. If you add an A at the end of it, it means like a clan leader, or, you know, or a gang leader. So we thought these guys were Serbian back at the time. So, you know, we, we read the, the German magazines and there is this band mentioned Voivod. So we're like, we got to check out these Serbian guys, you know, <laughs> because the name, you know, it sounded like it came, you know, from our region of the world. So that's no, why we they're Canadian. That, <laughs> yeah, little little did we know they were Canadian. We found out by uh, what is it, killing Quebec, uh, no less, French Canadians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm really happy because we got to play with them. We got to meet them, man. They were fantastic guys. Yeah, we wow. played with them uh, for the Hell's Heroes Two kickoff party. We played with them. Oh wow, that's that's huge, man. That's like a huge feather in your cap. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, amazing, man. These guys are just so down to earth. It's, you know, another thing that you can say, it's when you start getting on a higher level like we are right now, uh, mixing in with some of these big names, you know, you really find out who's who the cool nice and who's nice. not. Yeah, and who's there just for the money, you know, milking it, et cetera. I mean, because we did meet quite a few other big names, and, man, you know, there were some big sour pusses. Well, it, it, you know, and it doesn't matter what group you're in. And, you know, I, I've always looked at metal musicians as the dysfunctional family, which we are, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and every, every, you know, group of people, you're going to have that single asshole or you're going to have that, that, that uh, narcissistic, you know, just straight up motherfucker that doesn't give a shit about anybody else but himself or herself and you know you can't let you can't let a few bad apples ruin the whole bushel like you know like say, the old saying goes i would say you know of of the bands we've played with um most have been really welcoming and, and pretty friendly um udo was having a bad day when we played with him <laughs> udo wasn't super friendly um oh well, i've heard he's kind of coarse anyway interested in hanging out before the show i think his english also might might contribute to that somewhat i don't think his english is that good i mean we talk to his son all the time he's actually a drummer i don't know if you know this mm-hmm. uh Uru's son is actually a drummer of his soul band right now and the guy's pretty good i mean he's kind of meat and potatoes like phil rudd acdc type but you know he's a he's a good decent drummer has good power behind it and we talked to him he, he's a nice guy also his guitar player his lead guitarist was really nice that was the the guy from one of the Russian republics. I can't think of his name now. Uh, 
but yeah, we ended up talking to him for like two hours and, you know, just drinking vodkas and stuff. So, yeah, he was a good guy. Uh, but I do have something in common with Russians, you know, that's like uh, <laughs> the Eastern Bloc, you know? Right, so, right. It's like uh, that. that's one of the things about Slavic people is like we all consider each other brothers, you know. So whenever you run into somebody from a Slavic country, it's usually just like a reunion, you know, like a family reunion for the most part. The vodka yeah. comes out and, you know, <laughs> we're all brothers. <laughs> you know, and I would say for the most part, you know, Texans are pretty much that way, too, because we're all, yeah. you know, if you're if you were born in Texas and you got all the, well, for lack of a better term, propaganda and whatnot, you know, you 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 take that to heart and you meet another Texan in, you know, another state and you're like, hey, you know, and then it's like, you know, like y'all were lifetime lifetime friends. Uh, if if. If you could, uh, for the listeners that are not familiar with Scrollkeeper, how would you describe the sound of Scrollkeeper? It's just straight up heavy metal. Oh, I love that answer. Yeah, like we're not we're not playing any particular subgenre or sub subgenre. You know, it's straight down the line heavy metal. Yeah, there's I elements to, of other things, but it's heavy metal. I mean, I have to say, if you take Saxon. And accept as uh, the base. Throw in a little bit of uh, creator and destruction in there, and throw in a little bit of Voivod, and I guess a little bit of a death metal influence. You know, just little sprinkles here and there. So, in other words, we do not try to write number of the beast, uh, beast number two or whatever. You know, like a lot of these throwback bands are doing nowadays. You know, they pick either Judas Priest or Iron Maiden, and they just tried to write a better record exactly like the one that Iron Maiden and Judas Priest did. We're not like that. We're, we're our own people. But for the most part, it's traditional heavy metal with little sprinkles or other influences just because we can't control them. You know, it's like you have to, you have to throw in what you know. I come in from a death and trash metal background for the most part of played in those kind of bands for the most part. I did a little bit of blues and jazz too, so like some of the seeps and like you'll hear at the ending it kinda goes into a bit of a you know, totally off the off the wall kind of stuff where you're wondering. I mean I don't want to ruin the surprise, but you know, there's something at the end that, you know, doesn't probably belong in metal or completely. I don't know. It belongs. It belongs. But who the fuck cares? Nobody well, you know, cares. There's no, there's no R&B sneaking its way into the album. I mean, you well, you said you said the right term. You said the right word, and I will I will go to my grave saying that blues is the fundamentals for probably ninety nine percent of the music that we hear now. Sure, sure. And so many people are forgetting that, you know, especially when when you know we we are constantly inundated with shitty pop music that is <laughs> yeah. computer-based there's there's it loses that emotion it loses that feel and that's what blues gave us was that emotion that outpouring of sorrow or i'm gonna fuck you up or something like that that's you know uh, to me a a a metal band that has a a good foundation or at least a good working knowledge of the blues is worth its weight in gold. 
Well, and that that might be what's what's been lost in modern pop music as well is up through the '90s, even even looking at pop music and R and B and things of that nature, pop music. There was still a blues base to a lot of what they were doing. There was still an organic component. You turn on the radio today, certainly if it's pop or hip hop, but even the rock stations, there's no soul to any of it. It's it's all it's all electro pop nonsense. Also, the altitude, you know, that's prevalent in all this. I get to the point where actually most of these guys don't even bother to sing. They just go, you know. Yeah. Well, and and you alluded to it earlier. They call it the Millennium Chorus or the Millennial Whoop, they call it. Yeah, you were alluding to it earlier, you know, using the computer drums or the computer guitar or something like that. There's that human element. There's that feel because only a computer, I don't care how good fucking artificial intelligence gets. It's never going to be able to replicate feel and emotion. And that's what music is about. It's so bad that these drum programs, like if you use Apple's drum program, if you're recording in like GarageBand, it's canned drums, it's programmed drums, and then you can set it to a setting that intentionally humanizes it by throwing the beats off by fractions of a second. That's how bad it's gotten. But it still doesn't imitate a human. It still doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, if they're going to have to, and there's no way they could do it, there's no way that they could put Braun Daler in a computer program. No. It's impossible. So, I, you know, I don't know, imagine Mastodon without Braun Daler in it. The field, a lot of the field is just gone. Well, they do have uh, pre-recorded beats now by professional drummers. I don't know if you yeah. looked at the Easy Drummer line, Superior Drummer. And I've been using that for a while, actually. Uh, I'm an endorsee by them. And they have, you know, a bunch of guys, like the drummer of Nafogar or something, uh, Nocturnal Rights, I don't know what, some of the other guys. And they have basically, they go through their whole career and record their signature beats and transitions and you just drop that into a song and the problem is that it never is gonna fit because the drums have to react to the music so i think that's where it might be lacking a little bit but you know the thing is nowadays i mean you can do wonders where you can drop that drummer into your song and then just tweak it a little bit to hit exactly the right accents and it gets very close to where i would say you can fool the majority of the public i mean most people wouldn't be able to figure out if there is a drum machine used on your latest album, to be honest yeah, with you. Now, I'd say true. probably 90% of the public cannot tell. I mean, there honestly, is, there is so it matters. We're nitpicking things that people in the industry can hear, not not your average listener. Well, but there's in, something that doesn't translate because you don't have that human interaction and the song doesn't project reality to you. So a lot of people would, uh, you know, you can't fool the human ear for that, which, you know, thank God, you know, still we have live music. In other words, you know, you put a pre-canned drummer in there and it's perfect. It's great. It sounds like a real live drummer playing. But, you know, the whole interaction where, you know, hey, you've been fighting with this guy for two hours to get that drum beat or he didn't want to use that change in there or whatever. And you have that, you know, <laughs> rubbing. <laughs> Hey, Either the wrong or the right way, you know, basically the, what do you call it? The benefits and negatives of a marriage that's yeah. in the music. 
And I'll tell you what. But using studio session, guys. Wait, so are you saying we need to fight with Simon more? <laughs> I think we put a good amount of that. I mean, it's, I, I would call it fighting, but it's definitely, you know, arguing. I mean, all of friction us, never hurt anybody. It's like <laughs> all of us have our opinions, and we are very strong, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and, and give the listeners their first glimpse of – uh, of scroll keepers music and uh, i was informed before we started recording this that this is the this is the first time it's going to be heard because this is on an upcoming album that uh, hopefully will be uh be coming to light hopefully sooner than later and uh we're going to check it out when we come back we'll have the we'll have uh alex and justin talk about the song for valhalla's gate
All right. Well, I, I, all I can say is I'm definitely not disappointed. Thank you. you know, I, and and uh, you know, to be honest with you, it's just you. The thing that really just makes me smile, makes me feel good, is when you can listen to a song, and it doesn't matter what genre it is, but if it if it it has to connect with me in some way, you know. And when you can listen to a song and it, auto, it your attention is grabbed and you're just like, oh, yeah, I think I can get into this. And then the more you listen to it, you're just like, oh, fuck, yeah, this is a good song it, that, you know, it, it, it's it gets that slow burn thing going on. And then the more you listen to it, the more it, you, you find yourself relating to it. Uh, if you could give me some background on, you know. Events, uh, inspiration of the song. Well, Alex and I both wrote lyrics for it, so Alex started the process. So maybe he should kind of give the background on the foundation of, of what it's about. Yeah, I've been honestly, I've been sitting on this uh, since twelve seventeen, maybe twelve sixteen, even about the time I joined the band. Uh, we did have some somewhat technically deficient players in the band in the in the earlier lineup in other words i'm referring to our older old bassist and uh second guitarist both of these guys i mean they were good guys they could do really good on like judas priest kind of tune but you know if you pick up the tempo and you need more precision you know things started falling apart so we couldn't really execute it proper properly until we got our new bassist andrew and uh but anyway i've had this for a while and you know Justin and Simon both liked the song, and I think what happened is I went, uh, we went with Simon and saw Amona Marks, the Viking, uh, you know, what are they, power metal slash trash metal band or something right now, they, they sound more like a Viking power metal nowadays, but they started off as a, in the more extreme genres, but Mel anyway. Melodic death metal or, yeah. By hearing this, uh, you, you know, by seeing and hearing them, it's like, you know, this song could really be about Vikings. Let's try to do something about that. And so that's kind of, I started with the first chorus and had a, a not, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the chorus. I had a pre-hook for the pre-chorus, and then I had the first verse, but I just ran out of ideas. And since uh, Justin is a, you know, history buff and a history teacher on this same time, I was like, you know, man, you, you got to help me out with this. So he wrote all the verses, and then while we were kind of stuck on having a second chorus in there, we didn't know what to do, and then one day, you know, just had a few tequilas too many and just sat down, and it just came out, you know. So that's kind of how the chorus came out, and it just tied in uh, and finished the whole song, basically. And just as, as soon as we thought we were finished with it, you know, we kind of came out with this coroner hook that you know kind of came out from another song and we played around i brought it into simon he's like man we definitely gotta put this in he's also a huge coroner fan so we kind of threw in our homage to coroner in there as well so if you think about it i guess i have to say uh influences for this one definitely viking culture uh some somewhat of accept influences in there uh Scorpion's influences, believe it or not, there is a little bit of that in the pre-chorus. 
and uh, the coroner influence for sure. So, you know, definitely it's a hodgepodge for the most part. And Justin can probably go into the lyrics in detail a bit more. So lyrically, um, I, I didn't want to go the direction of like the entire song is about Vikings. So I, I tried to put a different spin on it where the first verse is very much sort of like a traditional, you know, Viking history culture verse, you know. But with the second verse, I took it to the Thirty Years' War. And the second verse is about uh, is about um, uh, the Swedish participation in the Thirty Years' War and uh, Gustavus Adolphus, who was king of Sweden at the time, who died at the Battle of Lutzen during the Thirty Years' War. So the first verse is about actual Vikings. The second verse is about King, Gust king uh, Adolf Gustavus Adolphus, uh, king of Sweden. Then the third verse is actually about modern Swedish forces uh, who are on peacekeeping missions in Africa. So it's sort of it's sort of kind of like a a tour down memory lane of of Swedish military history. You can kind of feel that we're uh, harking towards the European metal festivals, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, that's one thing I I love, and and you know, uh, me and Justin were talking. Uh, before Alex got on and uh, you know, he's a history teacher. I, I love history. And when you can, when you can pick up a heavy metal album and learn history, that's, I mean, that's like having your cake and being able to eat it too. You know, that's, that's a lot that's of history just, on this album. See, and that's, and, and, and that's kind of what I was picking up on. And I don't know. That's to me, that's uh that's just a recipe for greatness, you know, at least in my opinion. And it's, you know, it's very humble, very small, but. Well, uh, we don't do the sword and sorcery thing. Well, you know, you know that's cool. That you know, stuff. that stuff's cool too. I love that stuff too. You know, oh, there's and, a place for it. There's a place yeah. for it. Yeah. Historical battle metal, you know. Well, <laughs> Maybe you we can, should really call ourselves that. Battle metal. <laughs> you, you can go, you, you know, and again, going back to what I was saying earlier, that's what's great about metal. You can, you know, you can go the Megadeth route and go political or, you know, whatever. You can go, you know, the, the sword and sorcery type stuff with, you know, with Ronnie James Dio or, or something like that. And, or, you, you know, you can just go straight up. We're going to, fuck it. We're talking about everything. Whatever we're feeling at that moment, we're going to put, you know, pen to paper and, and make it something really, yeah. really awesome. But see, a lot of bands have lost that, especially Texas bands, man. We, you know, we play with a lot of people. I don't, I don't like to bag on anybody, but, you know, it's all these bands that are just like, ah, ah, you know, kill, fuck, drink. You know, it's like, it, okay, it, man, it, that was it, a... We, we call that barbecue metal. The seventies explode, you know the. <laughs> <laughs> we got another one. We got another one. He lost his drink. I love that. I love that. Oh, that that awesome. Well, there you go. If, <laughs> it's, if, it, if it's down tuned, chugga 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 power chords with a with a silverback gorilla screaming, and everybody in the front is wearing shorts and flip flops, that's barbecue metal. Man, that was me yesterday, man. <laughs> I even played some Pantera to get into the ambience. 
And I had to I had to revert to ZZ Top because my wife said she was gonna divorce because I went to the later Pantera albums. Uh, you know, the I mean the first three are gold for the most part, but you know once you get into towards the end of it, you know you can tell they kind of ran out of ideas. They took that aggression to as far as it would go with the drummer that they had at the time. You know, if they've had somebody like Nick Barker, they probably could have gone all the way to like grindcore or something. But you know. Talking about the players at the time, you know, they went as extreme as they could with this genre. And my wife is like, I'm going to divorce you. I'm like, how about some ZZ Top Sweet? There you go. Like, that, works, that works with the barbecue, you know, it kind of flows well with beer. You can't go wrong with ZZ Top. I'm sorry. You just can't. I, re- I rediscovered my love for ZZ Top yesterday. It was great. If and you don't I- like ZZ Top, I don't think I can trust you. Right? <laughs> right? There you go. See, I, I'm going to steal that tagline. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're like some sort of villainous character if you don't like ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah, you, you've just come to Earth from the bowels of hell, haven't you? Make sure you check out part two of my discussion with Scrollkeeper here on the Mind Parade.